Hello, I'm Rob Forsyth. Welcome to Liberalism in Question. In this half-hour podcast series from the Centre for Independent Studies, we explore questions and challenges to liberalism today. My guest today is Andrew Bragg, New South Wales Centre for the Liberal Party. He's written a number of books, but one I'm most interested in discussing with him is the book Baraja, The Liberal Case for National Reconciliation. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Before I talk about your provocative suggestions, I want to I start with what, why you believe in liberalism and do you think it is under threat today anyway? Well, I mean, I think, Rob, there's two parts to this. The first part is the, the philosophy uh, behind liberalism, and I think in Australia we have fashioned this thing we call Australian liberalism, which is a bit of a fusion of a belief in the individual as well as a belief in markets, and that was something that uh, I guess arrived uh, on these shores uh, about 250 years ago Uh, and I think that has propelled us to be one of the most successful countries in the world today. My own personal experience of it was that my father was involved in fruit growing in northern Victoria and um, in the early 90s recession uh, there was a a cannery in Shepparton called the SPC or Shepparton Preserving Company and that was brought to its knees by uh, militant unions uh, wanting to put effectively a price on labour which the company couldn't afford. It was a co-op at the time and that crashed it. And I guess that sort of um, embedded in me a a concern about vested interests. And and ultimately, um, I think the best way to beat vested interests is by looking at things through the prism of the individual. Your book, Baraja, The Liberal Case for National Reconciliation, um, starts with the premise that we must do, deal with something more than just individuals, as I understand. It's the, the Indigenous people of this, of this nation. Mm-hmm. Um, can, I, can I give you a quote and ask you to un- unpack it? Because this may be quite provocative. Mm-hmm. Uh, you say, the foundational offence of liberal Australia mm-hmm. was to pursue the development of modern Australia on the back of the displacement of Indigenous people, end of quote. Mm. Do you like to unpack that further? It's very, very, it's a very significant statement in your book, and quite a strong one. Well, I, I think in terms of the the project of modern Australia, with starting with Arthur Phillip in New South Wales, was uh, you know quite an enlightened project in in its day. And then when you come to federation, and not long after that, uh, Australian women are able to have the the vote. I mean. Um, it has been a very uh, liberal and often quite progressive pro- project, but the Indigenous people were pushed to the sides of the societies that were built and the cities that were built in around, around Australia uh, for various reasons. Uh, in, in the larger colonies, which became states, there were even more punitive policies applied to Indigenous people. and even in the constitution that was agreed in, in the end of the um, 1800s, which started in 1901, the, I mean, the Indigenous people were, were not considered in that document, which was really out of step with what the British were doing um, in, in these centuries in terms of their approach in New Zealand and Canada and, and some of the US states. So um, the failure to recognise and, and to come to some sort of an accommodation, I think, is something which has dogged the nation. 
and still dogs the nation in your view? Well, I think it does, and I'm not, I'm not here to to try and apportion guilt to anyone. But I think you know we we want to try and address some of these these issues uh, because we have a system today where you have 18 different laws on the federal statute books which are made for Indigenous people. Now, Indigenous people, the only race, uh, if you can use that that term, um, that have special laws made for them, and there's 18 of them, native title, heritage protection, land rights, Aboriginal corporations, so on and so forth. And so my the crux of my argument is, as, as a Liberal, is that if you're going to have a special system uh, or special laws, you need to have a program to manage that. You've got to give these people a, a, a say on how those laws are made. To, and to do otherwise is actually illiberal. The, the, the main... The, 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 the pushback from many Liberals at this point will be, of course, there, there are special laws for all kinds of people, different groups in this country, uh, and they've got a perfect right to have a say in it through the way we all have a say in it, namely equal members of the Commonwealth of Australia and the states have our rights treated equally, our rights to vote, our rights to be involved. What um, we, we are all, We're all citizens. We all belong together, including the Indigenous people of Australia. What's the problem? Well, the problem is you have 18 different laws on the books where you're denying these people to say on how those laws are to be deployed. And there are no other uh, group of, uh, you know, racial or ethnic groups that have these laws made for them. So uh, I, I think it's a pretty simple concept. I mean, what, okay, so th this is the issue I have with this, that why would we be afraid of getting more advice from the citizens about these special laws? I just think people are way too defensive in this space. I, I think um, we we had this ridiculous situation last year in the Senate where we passed these amendments to the, the Native Title Act. And I said, said, said to one of my colleagues, geez, it would be good if we knew what people who these laws are made for thought about this. And that person said, yeah, actually, that is a good idea. It would be good to know. Many people are concerned that, 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 that what's, what you're proposing and others like you proposing is a lot more than just getting advice from a group. It's enshrining um, in, a, in either in legislation or even the constitution very special rights that seem to be breaking across the liberal consensus of every individual having the same rights. You surely heard that argument. It, it, well, I'm concerned about your side of politics. Yeah, of course I can. Of course I understand that argument. And it's an argument which I um, I agree with, and we don't want to confer special rights, um, but we have special laws at the moment. And even one nation would accept the, the ongoing need to have laws like native title and land rights uh, going forward because the, um, especially in some remote parts of Australia, that, that, is, um, that is always going to be necessary. So the, the, the question is, can you do this in a way which doesn't offend liberal principles? And I think you've yeah, got to Yeah, that's right. Yeah, got to look, look at the statements that have been made by, uh, you know, Murray Gleeson, who was John Howard's Chief Justice and, and co, who said that um, that you can do this quite easily without offending the notion of, of equality um, in our in our polity. And that is and, and that is why I've tried to flesh this out. And I haven't done it to try and win friends. I mean, I've done it to I've, I've done it because I thought that the the, the debate was. Um, was shallow, was shallow. That, I mean, pe pe people basically said two things about it on, on my side. They've said, 
race has no place uh, in the Constitution or yes. in the laws, which obviously conveniently or otherwise ignores the fact that we've had these laws for decades now and we've always had these laws. Um, and the other thing people have said is third chamber. Now, or, or something like that, yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah. And, and I just think, look, um, you know, um, neither of those things are, are true, and so we should at least have a proper debate about it um, and look at all the different um, issues because if, if this is defeated or ignored, I mean, Indigenous people uh, um, aren't just going to sort of disappear. I mean, you know, there, there will be more radical solutions that, that emerge if this is defeated. Can I take... Are, are that, they're worth unpacking both of those, the, the, the so-called race in the Constitution and the issue of sovereignty or third third chamber. Yeah. Uh, why are there, in your view, Andrew, why are there special laws for Indigenous Australians in a way that seems different from other groups in the country? There, there are special laws like race, like which are quite distinctive, aren't they? And they can never be removed. That is, there'll always be a need for them in some form, do you think? Well, I mean, the, the Northern Territory now, the bulk of it is controlled by Indigenous uh, organisations, mainly land councils. Um, I don't think anyone is, would say that uh, Uluru should be taken away from those traditional owners. Um, so that's sort of a, you know, being granted under a land rights scheme. And then in terms of native title, I mean, as the High Court found 30 years ago, uh, where you could demonstrate uh, the, the, the native title test, there could be a native title uh, claim. And, um, I, I mean, th th these things potentially could have been avoided, Rob, if, if there had been the sort of agreement that you saw made in, in other jurisdictions, uh, whether it be, you know, New Zealand or Canada. But we are where we are. So we've, we've tried to sort of, I guess, retrofit some of these things. Um, and that is effectively why uh, why we have these laws. It's about um, access to land and, and, and territory for traditional purposes. Um, and then there, there are also laws that have been made to reflect the fact that in Indigenous communities there is uh, more of a, often more of a sense of collective of the, of the collective. Um, and so that's why you see when I mean, right now we're living through the, the coronavirus pandemic. You see that Aboriginal medical services in New South Wales um, are administering the the vaccination of the uh, of Pfizer predominantly, um, and that is something which is ha happening through a collective. So, which which is not something that we would necessarily see in non-Indigenous communities. Okay, is 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 a proposal for a voice in some kind in the constitution, especially in yeah. some sense recognising a sovereignty other than the sovereignty of the Liberal Commonwealth of Australia, the Commonwealth of Australia? Well, no, I, I don't think, I mean, look, the Uluru Statement talks about spiritual sovereignty. Yes, I saw that, yes. And that's not the same as legal sovereignty as we would understand it in Western legal construct. Um, I, I, don't, I, I don't buy into this sovereignty question. I mean, I don't think that uh, Indigenous as far as I can see, I don't think that the Indigenous sovereignty uh, that some people may claim existed 250 years ago was the same sort of sovereignty we would understand in, in Western 
uh, legal constructs going back to the, sort of the Treaty of Westphalia. Um, so I I, noticed, uh, that's one reason why I noticed in your book you are quite critical of any idea of a treaty as a yeah, way forward. I am. I, I think I think that's that, that's quite a poor concept. So, but it's interesting, Rob. I mean, the Uluru Statement doesn't mention the word treaty, um, and it doesn't get in doesn't get into sovereignty, legal sovereignty. It talks about a spiritual sovereignty. So that's the that, that's why one of the reasons that I think we should at least look at this in detail because I, I do think this is a document which has been drafted much more with liberals and conservatives in mind, in mind than perhaps people had given it credit for. I mean, the way that the Turnbull government dealt with this, I thought, was um, quite shallow in its own way. Let, let, let me just in, in, tell people who, who you are. Uh, this is Liberalism in Question. I'm Rob Forsyth, and my guest today is Senator Andrew Bragg, and we're discussing um, issues from his book, Baraja, the liberal case for national reconciliation, which is really a case for some kind of legislated voice uh, to Parliament. I notice, uh, Andrew, in your book, you, you you raise this question not just on the point of view of there are special laws for Indigenous people, there should be a way of formally hearing from them, but something far deeper, the notion of lack of legitimacy in some way. You say at one point, um, a people have been left out, want to be part of Liberal Australia, what could be more liberal than that? Left out. So is there an issue here that in some sense Indigenous people, though they are one level, are citizens of this country, another sense are left out? Is there a question over the legitimacy of the Australian sovereignty or the Australian um, constitutional government still in the air? Well, I mean, I, I spend time talking to lots of Indigenous people across the state I represent and I Travelled through the, the west of the state, through places like Walgut, Canamble, Bergbrawarana, and then up the coming down the coast, Nowra, Kempsey, whatever. And yeah, I talk to all, I talk to a lot of people. I think people feel indigenous. A lot of indigenous people feel frustrated that um, about the the evidently lack of um, agency a lot of indigenous people have, um, and I guess. A lot of people are angry about how things have been conducted over the last 250 years and I think uh, they would they would like to have some form of recognition but the recognition that is currently being sought is something more than just flowery words in the constitution and what they're seeking is um, more, you know agency um, and an input over laws and policies which affect them. So I think they've sort of moved on from this symbolic need to a more practical need. One, uh, this was tried before, wasn't it, with, with ATSIC and failed? Well, I mean, I think I mean, ATSIC was doing a lot of things, but it was spending money, um, which I think was problematic. Um, and the proposal of the voice is that the voice would be non-binding advice. So I think that's quite a different proposition. One, one, one of the tensions in the concept you've you just said is that people who are wanted want to have agency and, and yet the voice is only advice. It can't be anything more than advice, which is kind of setting things up at one level for a, a problem of expectations, overinflated expectations, because if the government doesn't Act. The government doesn't do what the voice suggests. Mm -hmm. um, that's in a sense denying them agency. 
So I think that's what lies behind the third chamber fear, that that concern that if it's going to really work, it's got to have it's got to have teeth. And if it has teeth, then it's threatening the, the sovereignty of parliament. Well, I think there's a few points I made. The first point is that the local and regional voices are about service delivery. They're about um, you know how Aboriginal medical services work, getting the kids to school, all that sort of stuff. They're about you know practical stuff on on the ground in community. The national voice is much more about you know national laws. Um, in relation to, um, you know, native title, um, land rights, I mean, even how we handle things like, like the Aboriginal flag, which is an absolute yeah. mess. Uh, so I think there are different there are different parts of this, Rob. Um, and look, as as uh, former High Court Justice um, Gleeson said, I mean, there is no threat to the sovereignty of Parliament with a voice. Um, to Parliament, you know, in the Constitution or certainly outside the Constitution. So the, the question is really, um, you know, what sort of constitutional reform model would, would we put forward? And I think that there are different ways you could do that. I think there are liberal ways and illiberal ways you could do that. One of your arguments is that this really is for the Liberals. The Liberals now we mean not just political philosophy, but the party by that name and those associated with it, to continue leadership in this area. One of your points, I notice, is to try and uh, reclaim for your own particular party uh, something of its legacy in advancing Indigenous affairs. Well, I think the Liberal Party has a, a great record, and few people know about this, that, you know, obviously Harold Holt was responsible for the referendum in '67, which was a resounding success, and provided the Commonwealth a power to legislate in Indigenous affairs, but also included Indigenous people in the census uh, because they had been excluded from the census up until 1967. Um, now, I mean, one of the main reasons that the Indigenous lobbies of the 60s wanted the Commonwealth to have a power was because they were scared of the state government, especially in, especially in Queensland and, and Western Australia where I mean, the you know the indigenous people were, were treated effectively like animals um, in many respects, um, and so they were afraid. Um, and so Holt delivered that. Um, Menzies was not minded to deliver that, but Holt did, which is interesting. And then, of course, Malcolm Fraser, who is you know I think fairly maligned on economic grounds, really was a really a strong liberal. Um, when it came to social policy, I mean, he he passes the Land Rights Act, 1976, uh, which was the first one, the first one, and then was uh, pushed through in other states. Uh, but that that has now resulted in the Northern Territory, the majority of the Northern Territory being controlled by uh, Indigenous uh, uh, land councils. So there is a strong record there, uh, and I think if we want to be ambitious in the present, we need to understand our past. So. I, I, I doubt a Labor could deliver uh, any any of this. So I really do think it's something that we should we should try and lead lead on, but then seek bipartisan support for. Why why do you think now that in more recent times, it's been the right the centre and right of politics, which just seem to be against these changes? What's gone wrong, or what's changed in your own party or, or your side of politics? <laughs> Well, it's a... I'm not asking for names. <laughs> I am, but I'm not going to get them, I know. <laughs> Good question. Look, I, I think... Um, look, I think Paul Keating um, 
did, did a lot of work in this area, I mean, partly driven by events. I mean, at the end of the day, though, look, um, you know, the referendum in 67, the land rights scheme, and then the native title arrangements, which were established by the High Court, um, really lays the bulk of the, of the achievements here to the Liberal Party side. Um, Labor, of course, uh, pulled, pulled the native title uh, business into, into an act of parliament. Um, and that, of course, was then amended by Howard. Um, but, um, I mean, look, a lot of that heavy lifting was done because it needed to be done in that period. I, I'm I think, asking about this period, though. I mean, look, I think in this period, I mean, the, the PM has been, I think, quite strong in the sense that he has been prepared to totally refashion the closing the gap targets. Uh, he's also I mean, he's changed the anthem um, as well. Um, and, and I think um, he has followed the co-design recommendations set out by Julian Lisa and Pat Dodson. Uh, and he's also appoint, appointed the first Indigenous person to be the minister. So I think the PM has done a lot of good work in this space. He has, he has a good record. I'm hoping he'll be ambitious. Uh, and, you know, that is, I mean, where, where we are now is a pivotal moment because the co-design voice report is with the government or will be with the government soon and uh, the Cabinet's got to decide how it wants to handle What I know what you'd like to happen. Mm. It's a pivotal moment for good, but it's also a pivotal moment in which a lot can go wrong. Yep. A lot of damage, damage be done, it seems to me. Well, we are... And, and there's a great danger here of, of uh, if you're right, of danger of this being not achieved in the way in which you think it ought to be achieved, and therefore I'm not sure where that will leave us. So I, I think the question is what do, you, what do you want to do in this term of parliament? I mean, my view is that there's not been enough work done on the constitutional reform models, and people will have legitimately a range of views. And the great thing about our constitution is everyone gets a say through a referendum. Now, um, effectively, the question would be, does the majority want to give the minority something that should have been given uh, before these special laws were made, right? Um, um, and that is going to be a tough, a tough, tough sell. So a lot of work needs, needs to be done, and it's entirely legitimate that people will be given a say on what sort of models should be taken seriously, and so I think we need to have that process. I don't think we can deal with that in this term. I think we need to deal with that in the next term. Um, so I would like us to deal with all these, these questions in the, in the first year of the next term. I think if we rush this, this term, I think the whole thing you know, could, could collapse. I, I, I'm sure you're right, actually. And given the fact that we're pre the COVID the COVID pandemic is continuing to dominate yep. most of the issues, that can't possibly happen. One one criticism of, of the, your proposal, not yours personally, but the general proposal I hear, even from Indigenous people, is look, uh, there are some real issues out here, in particularly in remote and remote areas. Yeah. And and this talk about having voices just gives the voice often to the to the wrong people and doesn't deal with the real issues which need to be dealt with. And I can point to the fact that despite all this um, land rights and so forth, the plight of your remote Indigenous people is not any better. In fact, you could argue it's actually declined. And that's why 
I think we need to make sure that this scheme works for the people on the ground. It is a it is a useful way of parliaments across the country hearing what is being said on the ground because um, we're not building something for the elites and for, for Canberra lobbyists. We're building something for the forgotten the forgotten people. Right? I mean, we're back to the forgotten people. <laughs> uh, indigenous people are not united. They are have many different points of view. Uh, in fact, there were hundreds of languages when the uh, when Australia was settled or invaded. Uh, I like the way you say <laughs> you, you have two bets on that either one way. Both in wonderful because the taking of the land was not not done legitimate in your view. But there is massive massive division amongst Indigenous people. Do you see that as a as a danger for for the effectiveness of your proposal? Oh, it's not for me. Because it, it, you see it all out. You see it today. The wrong, the wrong mob get the say is a fear of, of other. I hear that quite a bit, and there's something yeah. in it. Yeah. So look, I think it's a question of um, how do you do local voices? How do you how do you how do you get the authority of the local communities? I mean, there's a scheme in Western New South Wales called Murdy Parky, where, whereby they don't have elections. Um, but the, the town will come together and they will um, not not in an election as we would understand it's conducted by the AEC, but they will they will formally endorse one person to be what they call the working party chair, and that person will be the representative of that area um, on relation to these matters. So uh, um, I think every area has different norms and practices, and that's really up to the local areas to work out. The, the real, and that's not for Canberra to try and... No, you know. no. So the question for Canberra is, though, um, and, you know, there are different views. I mean, some people would say we should definitely have the local voice, right, and people would say that's essential, that's what this is all about. Um, I'm of the view that you should have the local voice and the national voice because you have national issues. But the challenge, which I haven't really resolved in my own head, is but how would we determine who's on that national voice? So let's say, imagine it's a committee of 12 people. Um, so how, how would that work and how would they get the authority from the ground? So that's something that we need, we need to work through clearly. And as I said to you before, we haven't done all the work on this yet. Right. So you, you, as I understand you're saying, one, this is important. It's consistent with liberalism, if understood in without a sovereignty question, but in terms of genuine consultation. There's an awful lot of work still to be done, is, is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and therefore not to be rushed, and then again not be pushed off forever. It's a difficult situation. Andrew yeah. Bragg, um, what 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 would you say, what, or what do you say, what would you say to people on your side of politics in particular, mm. who are very cheery of this proposal? I, I don't mean to persuade them, but what, what would you ask them to do next to, to open their minds to what you think might be the case? What what would you say to people who've uh, well, I, I, they're, they're, I, I'm not name names, but there are people in, in the in the public arena from your side of politics, thinking that any form of this is dangerous or unhelpful or not needed or too um, bringing wokeness into the constitution. All different ways, but what would you say to them is the first thing they should do to to see the legitimacy of what you want to propose? Well, the very simple argument is that we we already have laws which are made especially for Indigenous people and we need to have a system to manage those um, if we are serious about our liberalism because um, denying people a say on special laws 
is wrong and why would you be afraid of getting more advice from the citizens? I mean, should, isn't that a good thing? It's not binding. There's no legal constitutional issues here. Um, so, I mean, those, those, are my, those are my two key arguments. And, um, you know, I guess the third, the third piece is, you know, these issues are never going to go away, right? And the Indigenous community is now getting close to a million. I mean, in my state, there's almost 300,000. It's the biggest single community. These issues aren't going to go away. So we're better off engaging and trying to make fashion this into the best thing that we can as Liberals and Conservatives uh, rather than uh, be bashed over the head by the left for forever. There you are. I, I wonder whether here I must, as I draw, my, draw this interesting conversation to a close, is almost that there's a battle of ideas going on within liberalism about what really liberalism will mean in the future in Australia. I feel, I feel there's something going on here, but within the very movement, it's broadly understood itself on this question. Well, well Rob, I mean, I don't. I mean, we're obviously not 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 reactionary. So I think these sort of discussions are extremely healthy, right? And I think the discussions I've had with my colleagues who are against this have been respectful, thoughtful, good. Okay. Uh, and and this is a you know they, these these debates are good and healthy. So, um, but liberalism has shown itself to be incredibly flexible, incredibly flexible. I mean, our, our version of Australian liberalism is unique to Australia, um, and Australian liberalism under the Fraser government encapsulated or created the first form of kind of collectivism uh, by legislating land rights in 1976. Right, so that's part of our system. Right, and then. Our liberalism has gone on to um, include native title, which is a, diff a different formulation. So I just think at the end of the day, um, th there is a debate to be had about this, which is good and healthy, and uh, my view is that liberalism is flexible. Um, others will say it's inflexible, and, and, that's, and that's okay. But, but, that is, but, that, but that is not a left and right thing inside the Liberal Party. Um, that is just a that's just a debate. Okay, Andrew Bragg, thank you very much for sharing some of your thoughts on the matter. I've been speaking with Senator Andrew Bragg, uh, New South Wales Liberal Senator, about uh, some of the ideas in his book, Guaraja: The Liberal Case for National Reconciliation. This has been another podcast from the Centre for Independent Studies. For decades, the CIS has been an independent voice working to deliver evidence-based policy within a classical liberal framework. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. Head to cis.org.au to see how you can get involved. I'm Rob Forsyth. Thank you for listening.